Um, it's really great to be here with you. This year has been uh, quite remarkable for me in terms of travel. Uh, I, I am not a particularly strong travel enthusiast, but there has been our trip to Tonga, which we've talked about quite a lot. And uh, before that, I actually had the great opportunity to go to a family wedding in Arizona, and his cousins have uh, made several trips over here, and so it was our chance to pay them back a bit, but also have some fun and, and go and see uh, and his cousin getting married. And we got to go to this lavish wedding at this opulent uh, country club. I'd never been to one of those, but they exist. They're just like the movies. So there was like the lifeguard, the volleyball court, the amazing expensive golf course there was everything there and we also got to go on a road trip in a 2018 Dodge Caravan there were two of those it's like a really sort of fancy minivan and that was something that had been organized by uh, Anna's auntie and uncle and it was a real blessing to us because traveling with our little baby uh, was hard work and uh, it meant that we could have some cool adventure time without much of the effort New Zealand is a green country. You fly in from anywhere and it is green. We, we maybe have the monopoly on green, right? But Arizona and Utah, they have got the red. They have got all of the reds. They've got the yellow red, the pink red, the red red, the dark red. Maybe Luke will throw up some of the little invitations to see how red it was on the screen behind me. And... Uh, there were so many reds on uh, the very aptly named National Scenic Byway Number 14 that was part of our road trip. It was an unremarkable name of a road, but an amazing and remarkable scenery and countryside that we got to experience. And one of the stops on our road trip was at a place called Zion National Park in Utah, and that was remarkable. It was truly amazing to see such a foreign and different and wonderful and beautiful scenery. And it transported me straight into the movie 127 Hours. Can I get it like I've seen that? I'm familiar with the name. So the movie is about a guy called Aaron Rolleston. He's, he's very adept, very quick, very... Um, skilled in the outdoors, he is confident, and maybe he's too confident and cavalier, and it's based on a true story. He travels out into the depths of what is called Blue Canyon National Park, um, I think, it, yeah, there's so many canyons. We went to the Grand Canyon, which is amazing and can only really be taken in by actually being there to see it, but there are a lot of canyons, I didn't realise, there's canyons everywhere, and they've all got names. Anyway, this guy is traveling uh, and just having his outdoor uh, fun, and he takes some risks. He slides down this little cool water slide thing um, in the movie, and he manages to trip and fall, and he falls in this, like, what's called a slot canyon, which is a very narrow one, and his arm gets wedged between a boulder and the side of the canyon, and he is stuck. And this is like a little bit of a gruesome, maybe a little bit risky story for a Sunday morning, you know. But in order to free himself, he um, tries everything. He waits for help, but his arm begins to become poisoned and uh, it is killing him. And so he's got a little blunt uh, multi-tool that he actually, this is a true story, he manages to go through and cut his own arm off to free himself. And, and it's a miraculous and brave and amazing story and Maybe everybody who watches it says, oh, like you put yourself in that could I do that or not sort of situation. 
But, you know, your arm, his arm was definitely amazingly important and useful to him. But in that moment, he, it was killing him and he, it was the thing that was holding him back and the thing that had him trapped. And it was quite obvious. That's quite an obvious example. He's physically trapped by his physical arm. But I want to talk this morning about the things that trap us and the things and the thoughts and the habits that hold us just as stuck as Aaron Rolleston was stuck by his arm. There is a greater level of freedom and understanding in God than we have now, amen? And by identifying where we are stuck, we can have a richer, freer, more full life of faith. As we learn to live and walk with God in our thoughts, free to hear Him, we will live out the exciting life in Jesus Christ. Make some room. Um, every morning, I uh, as part of this isn't mine, but there we go. Every morning, as part of my uh, prayer life, I have formed the discipline of of chewing over and reading through and praying through the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I don't know if you guys wake up and feel full of joy to pray every day, but that isn't the reality for me. I find it hard work um, quite a bit of the time. So this little activity is part of my uh, warm-up jog, I guess, of my spiritual day. And so what I mean by chew over is I just pray through and I think about those key elements of Father, of Holy, of Kingdom Come, on earth as in heaven, daily bread, my needs. I've got needs. I've got loads of needs. And I get to often forgive me my trespasses. And, and after that, I sort of whiz off because it's sort of, um, anyway, I realized that I had been just whizzing through the second part. I sort of thought, yeah, no, I'm pretty good at forgiveness. I'm definitely like fine on that regard. I've forgiven all of the other people uh, as I have been forgiven. And I felt challenged by God about this recently. And I began to think like, what are, you know, I'm pretty like, God, God would you show to me like what it is? Where, where have I just whizzed over um, things? And I actually surfaced this pretty strong, um, pretty big grudge that I had been holding that I didn't realize. And the reason that I think that I didn't realize it is because I thought about it quite often, like almost all of the time. Like it was just sitting there in the background. It was like the well-behaved child uh, in the classroom who's always quiet and sitting up straight, but they've also always got their hand up. It was like that sort of thing that was always there. And the grudge was about, an un- an, was about an injustice that I felt. And it sounded like one of those, I can't believe they haven't type things. I can't believe they haven't type thoughts. You know, we need our imagination to be free, to be able to hear from God, to follow after him. And whenever I was in this loop of thinking about this particular issue, it was like I had a layer of glad wrap over my thoughts and that I couldn't, everything was just contained within this, within this particular thought. I could complain to God during when I was thinking about this, but I couldn't move on. And I just, it brings me to Colossians 3 verses 2 and 3. And as a quick like explanation, I'm reading from the Voice Bible translation this morning. And that's kind of maybe a modern sort of message type idea that they have put it into. They've added some more of the um, 
interest type of words, a bit like the Amplified Bible, where it, it gives you more of an explanation and it's a bit storyified. So I just wanted to read from Colossians 3 this morning, which says, So it comes down to this. Since you have been raised with the anointed one, the liberating king, set your mind on heaven above. The anointed is there, seated at God's right hand. Stay focused on what's above, not on earthly things, because your old life is dead and gone. Your new life is now hidden, enmeshed with the anointed who is in God. And I wasn't free to hear that. I wasn't free to hear from God or, or to look upward when I had this, um, this loop going on. I was, felt negative and I felt a bit hopeless. It was almost though there was this shell around my imagination. And if we're going to see God's kingdom come, as we've been talking about, we need to be free to hear from God. And we need to set our mind on things above. Not just generally upward, but on God and Jesus Christ, who is standing at, who is sitting at God's right hand. If Jesus is the focus of our imagination, then that will profoundly affect the way that we live and the way that we act. It's it's like this: imagine a boy going for a walk across town to see a girl. Seeing her and spending an evening with her is the point and purpose and goal of his walk. She is alive in his imagination. She's all that he's thinking about. He's walking through town and he passes a beautiful little cafe bakery little item there and he sees that they have some beautiful French macarons and he knows that these are her favourite items. So he picks a few out as he walks along. He carries on walking and he sees a florist. They've got some fresh spring daffodils. And he just thinks he can see how much they will make her smile. He can see how good they will look in her hands and how happy they'll make her. So he buys some. As he carries on, a bunch of his friends walk by and they wave and they call out to him. Doesn't even notice. He walks past the church and he pauses quite a long time to look at it. He even pokes his head inside. Because once he heard uh, a while ago that this girl had mentioned that that's the type of place that she would like to get married in. You know, as he nears her house, he he finds, looks around left and right and and checks his reflection in the car window outside so that he's looking and he's, he's presented just as he will want to be for her. By the time he arrives at her house, we could make a long list of the specific actions that were caused by the girl that was in his imagination. If Jesus is alive in our aspirations and dreams, we will do things and we will live in ways that we never would have imagined otherwise. Jesus used a lot of plain talk in his stories. You know, wine at a wedding, fish with fishermen, water at a well, lost sheep, lost coins. And he he tells a number of wheat stories, and there are a number of wheat stories throughout the whole Bible. Wheat is food. It's edible. It's delicious. You know, gluten does amazing things. Donuts, for example, just one of the many amazing things. And we talked about this uh, as we went through Psalm 1 in frequency, that that a lot of the stories that involve wheat also involve chaff. And chaff is the rubbish that, is, that floats away or is removed during the milling or the threshing process. 
And the chaff is the husk or the part of the wheat germ that, that we can't eat. We want to be people who are free of chaff. We want to be people who are edible for the world. Amen. In Psalm 4, it says this, verses 6 to 8, Crowds of disheartened people ask, Who can show us what is good? Let your brilliant face shine upon us, O Eternal One, that we may know the undeniable answer. You have filled me with joy, and happiness has risen in my heart. Great delight and unrivaled joy, even more than when bread abounds and wine flows freely. Do you want to show people with your life that you know what's good? Do you want to show people that you're living in joy and that God has brought you joy and peace? I do. I want to be edible for the world. And sometimes the things that we hold on to, like this grudge that I found, like our pain and like our hurts, they steal our joy. And they mean that we're shaded or shielded and we're not actually reflecting God. We're not reflecting His face shining on us. One of these wheat stories in the New Testament is about keeping the rules. And it goes like this. It's from Mark 2. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they, picked, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are, they, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So, so the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. The Pharisees were sticklers for the rules. They loved them. They lived out an intricate, demanding keeping of the law that filled them with pride. And they lived out a keeping of the law that was wholly external, Jesus and his disciples picking grain was work, and work was against the rules. And you know those times, sometimes you learn something about someone and it totally gives you a brand new insight into why they perhaps react a certain way or, or why they're scared of a certain thing or why uh, they feel really challenged by stuff that it looks like they could easily do. I had one of those, you have like an aha moment that explains like, oh, that's causing a bit of their behavior. There it is. And I recently had one of those learning moments about the Pharisees because I had never heard a single creditworthy, reasonable thing or good thing about the, anything that they had done. So between 300 and 200 years before Christ, the Pharisees were responsible for saving Judaism and the Jewish religious part of their nation from capitulating before the worldwide influence of Greek thought. Which This project that was started by Alexander the Great was to conquer the world and to convert the whole world to the Greek philosophy, uh, language, and understanding. And this, broadly speaking, generalizing, the Greek thought said, uh, which is also known as Hellenism, if you want to Google it up, they believed that the physical world was transitory and evil, that the spiritual world was eternal and good, and that humans were the ultimate source of truth and authority. And the Greeks were amazingly successful at converting people to their set of beliefs. 
they used their uh, gymnasiums, the Olympic Games, and their language to convert the world to their philosophy, and it did deliver prosperity. Against this worldview, a small group of strict adherents realized that whatever the benefits in terms of prosperity and that sort of thing and peace that was offered, it wasn't in keeping the law. It wasn't in line with the law of Moses. And it had nothing to do with God, and so they didn't want a bar of it. And through strictness of behavior and steadfast keeping to uh, the law of Moses, they were able to resist the Greek uh, influence, the small group of Pharisees, not the whole of the Jewish nation. And they resisted to the point where these peace-loving philosophical Greeks resorted to force to try and bring them into line with uh, what they believed. The rules and behaviors of the Pharisees were essential in saving the religion. But the thing was, and I think the reason that Jesus is always having a go at, well, he was, he was ruthless toward the Pharisees, was that 200 or so years later, they had lost God in it. The rules no longer served the purpose, and they instead were a burden of immense weight rather than serving a God-loving purpose. And I think sometimes our lives are exactly the same. We develop habits and patterns and ways essentially to keep ourselves safe. You know, maybe when we're younger, we're in an unsafe situation at school. So we we learn and we need a bodyguard. So we learn to get angry or we learn to explode at people to keep ourselves safe. Or maybe we learn to stew on things or out-silence all the competition. And that keeps us... um, that keeps us protected. And in the short term, it works. In the short term, these things help us to have a bodyguard that does protect us. But over time, if we fail to notice that we don't need them anymore and that there are better ways, what was once a bodyguard does turn into and transform into a prison guard, which keeps us trapped in that behavior and in that thinking. You know, sometimes this chaff, this coating, this shell has become really hard. Hard and reinforced and cemented over years and years. And I want to invite us this morning to be a people who are becoming unstuck. Is that cool? Because it's a hard and it's a brave thing to do. Giving up on hurts isn't just giving up on hurts. It also leaves us vulnerable. How can I begin and to forgive and to reconcile with my family if that has been the reason that I've given for why my life doesn't look the way that I thought and hoped that it would look like? If I've gotten so used to self-pity that it's actually become a comfort and something that I enjoy wallowing in, what am I going to do if I don't have that anymore? If I can't blame my situation on someone else, I'm going to have to take responsibility for it. I've got four suggestions of ways that we can be people who are becoming unstuck. And the first and the biggest is that becoming unstuck means walking together with others. We need people to speak into our lives. We need perspectives. We need to truly let people in to how we're going. You know, one of the precious memories from our recent trip to Tonga was when Thomas put his hand up and he said, hey, in our group time, I need courage. That was so precious because in the act of saying, declaring 
publicizing his need, he actually gained a whole bunch of the courage that he needed to be able to carry on being away from home, being away from his parents. And over the next couple of days, I saw him take ground that I, don't, I can't see him ever giving back. You know, several years ago, I met up with a really good friend, and he had some extremely hard stuff uh, to share with me. It was, it was so hard that he had written it out on paper by hand so that he would be able to say what he wanted to say because of all of the emotion wrapped up in the situation. And as he said it, and, and as we talked it through, and as we've carried on talking about it, he has said that that act of sharing broke the power of this thing over his whole life. It's amazing. In walking with other people, we gain perspective. We put ourselves in a position to hear crystal clear perspective. I'm sure that you all, we all, have people who, who've got these problems and are stuck in stuff. And from the outside, we can be like, oh yeah, it's that. But the person themselves, it's not obvious to because they're wrestling with all of the internal stuff that you can't see. I had a coffee this week with somebody who I've been catching up with who I massively admire. And uh, we have, it's amazing. I love talking with him. And I put to him the situation that Anna and I have been working with and, and, and dealing with for like a few months, trying to understand, trying to understand what God might have for us in it. And near the end of our chat, he said some really scary and partly exciting words. He said, you want to know what I would do? And I was like, you know, if it hadn't have been so freezing this week, I might have like got a little sweat going, but it was too cold for that. And I wanted, but I wanted to hear what he had to say. And he said to me, hey, for the, fast, for the past five years that we've been catching up, you've been telling me this. Your heart's been telling me this. You've been telling me that you're doing this, and then you got frustrated. And then you've done a new thing, and then we've been talking it through, and then you've got frustrated. And now you're doing this, and you've gotten frustrated. If you take this way of responding to the situation, I reckon we'll be having coffee in two years, and again, you'll be frustrated. And he said, here's what I would do. And, and he put his finger right on the big risk that I was kind of trying to hide from. And I just really appreciate and love that uh, aspect of, of walking together with others. Walking together is an essential part of becoming unstuck. Becoming unstuck means collapsing the dualism. A dualism, D-U-A-L, is when we conclude that there are only either-or options. And this can just be really helpful to recognize because an either-or attitude means that we can't make a new decision because we're, it's either this or it's that. And, and what I mean by that, what I mean by collapsing the dualism is recognizing that change is a process and that change isn't just a hard and fast thing. I don't move into a doing a new thing and then I have to be perfect at it. You know, you have to learn and you grow. A really good example of what I mean is about forgiveness. Either or thinking says, oh, if, if I forgive this person, then I'll have to take them back and then they're going to have to, they're going to run over me and rule me and crush me again and I can't afford that. I can, that's not safe for me. But if we collapse that either or thinking, we can recognize that forgiveness and trust are not the same thing. That I can forgive somebody, I can give that offense over to God to deal with, but I don't also have to respond exactly the way the person wants. I can say to them, hey, I can step out 
if you want to earn my trust back, this is the steps, these are the steps that you can take to earn it back. Does that make sense? Becoming unstuck means filling our imagination with the promises of God, setting our minds on things above where Christ is seated. Psalm 125 verse 2 says, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. When I'm feeling unprotected or vulnerable, I can remind myself that God surrounds me like a mountain surrounds Jerusalem. One of the great promises in the Bible is actually the opposite of this idea of dualism, and it's called a merism. I love words, so you can learn some new words too, increase that vocabulary. But a merism is when you name both elements or both poles of an idea, uh, and it's just a fancy way of saying everything, really. But Paul was, was a big fan of the merism. And you'll hear it in this, For I am convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I'm feeling distant from God, if I'm feeling away from God, then I can remind myself that there is nothing in all creation that has separated me from Him, despite how I feel about it. Becoming unstuck means answering God with our prayers. Last Sunday afternoon, I went out to Forest Lakes to be part of a baptism uh, for a couple of friends. And one of the people that got baptized was telling the story of of his three years uh, of knowing about Jesus and about faith. And he said that the biggest battle over those three years had been of forgiving himself. And Psalm 32 says, When I refused to admit my wrongs, I was miserable, moaning and complaining all day long, so that even my bones felt brittle. Day and night your hand kept pressing on me. My strength dried up like water in the summer heat. You wore me down. When I finally saw my own lies, I owned up to my sins before you, and I did not hide my evil deeds from you. I said to myself, I'll admit all my sins to the eternal, and you lifted and carried away the guilt of my sin. Praying through Psalm 32 in moments of guilt will see, you'll see God take your guilt away too. You know, I could go on and on about Psalm 51, create in me a pure heart and restore me with a sense of being brand new. But I, this is, I wanted to finish with becoming unstuck through prayer because we've got to understand that it's ultimately the Holy Spirit who brings change and healing in our lives. Our imagination and our thought life are vital assets in living well. We need, we need to be free and open and focused on Christ who is sitting at the right hand of God. When he is, when that is the focus of our imagination, he will show up in our lives and cause us uh, to live in a way that brings so much joy and shows the world what is good. In order to do this, we need to surface and deal with the stuff that, has been holding, that we've been holding on to. Whether we're aware of the things or, or whether we, we need to come to learn what they are, we're going to find that out through walking with others and getting their perspective. We need to understand where our thinking is letting us down and not being helpful. We need to live in God's promises for us 
and answer him in prayer because it is God who changes us. It is God who restores us. It is God who draws us near. It is because of him that we have life. It is because of him that we uh, understand who Jesus is and what he has done. I want to invite us today to answer uh, what God has been speaking to us. And with the importance uh, of walking together, uh, I'm going to invite us to participate in um, a little risk, a little act of uh, living of faith. And I want to invite all of us to pray uh, to find someone else in your row or someone that you're comfortable with. And I invite you to pray uh, together for one of three prayers. If God has been putting his finger on something in your life and, and you're, you're happy to share it, I invite you to, to say that, ask the person uh, who you're with to, to pray for that for you, for you and to share that burden together. It doesn't mean spilling your guts. It doesn't mean going over the top, but just getting started on, on talking about that with somebody else. If there's nothing that's come to mind so far, then I'd, I just invite you to, to ask someone to pray for you. Hey, God, would you show me what it is that's holding me back? Would you show me the things that I'm stuck in? Or the third thing, I invite you to get together and pray for the other people here that, they, uh, that God would minister to them as they need, that God would be part of uh, what they're doing. Is that cool? I, I want to give you permission to say no. You can be strong and say, hey, thanks for the offer. I'm just going to sit here this time. You can say, hey, I, I'm not really ready to pray, but I'd love to be, stand here and listen with you. But I just invite everybody to, to stand or to turn to the person that they're with and, and be part of this walking with others, to be part of this active life uh, of living in faith. And we're going to, after a few minutes, we'll get Bruce McKevitt to uh, come and pray and, and, and close things off. But please uh, take this invitation now to share with, um, yeah, to share what God's been sharing with, speaking to you about.